Welcome to Beneath the Willow Tree, a podcast dedicated to the pursuit of truth through wonder with me, Sophie Burkhardt. If you've been listening the past few episodes, I am continuing in this series where I'm grappling with the question, what does it mean to be human? And this week, it's going to be a little bit different. I'm not digging into one particular story and and seeing how that embodies what it means to be human. Instead, I thought I would just sort of camp out in this idea of memento mori, which I know is a bit depressing, but it's an important aspect of what it means to be human. And I was thinking about it more after we did um, the last episode on all creatures great and small. We talked about that near the end of the episode. And I don't know, it, it just made me think more, reflect more on this idea of memento mori and how we so often in our current situation completely ignore or, or try to avoid the thought of death and the fact of death. And so that is, that's what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, if you if you don't know what memento mori means, it re- means to remember death, remember you will die. It is Latin. And alongside the phrase memento mori, which has existed in a variety of cultures throughout time, but there's, it, it's very Christian specifically, but even more specifically, is this particular phrase, I'm going to say, um, dust you are, and to dust you will return. Or, in, in a wording that I think is more beautiful, remember, man, that thou art dust, and unto dust thou shalt return. So this is pulled from God's words to Adam and Eve in the garden in Genesis 3.19. But these words have been taken and incorporated into the church year. So if you attend a liturgical church, you will, on Ash Wednesday each year, have a service and the priest will say these words to you as he rubs ashes on your forehead in the shape of the cross. And so uh, each liturgical year, then at the beginning of the Lenten season leading up to Christ's death and resurrection, you're put in this place to remember that you will die. And I think in the Lenten season specifically, which obviously right now we're not, we're actually still in the Easter season and in the time of rejoicing in the church. Um, But I think it's so powerful that you spend this, these 40 days in Lent of fasting, of reflection, of penance, of almsgiving as well, of, of remembering that you are going to die, that to be a human means that you are a body, we are not just spirits, we are corporal beings, and as corporal beings we will die. To remember that we were brought from the dust by God and he breathed life into us, and at the end of our days we will return to dust, right? We will die, everything will cease functioning, our bodies will, will turn to skeletons and then crumble away slowly but surely into nothing more than dust. And and so, I, I, I don't know, I mean, I feel like I'm a bit all over the place <laughs> with this because I just sort of have a list of notes, but I had no specific uh, format or structure to this today. But considering the fact that we take time every year with Lent to reflect on this, that we have Ash Wednesday, we have a service sort of dedicated to remembering that we are dust and to dust we will return. I think it's something that important and something that we need to perhaps think about 
even more throughout the rest of the year. Although that I think is, is really the time to focus in on it and hone in on it, which is what I love about liturgical seasons is that there's times for rejoicing, there's times for sorrow. Everything is sort of worked into this yearly repeating cycle that brings you, pulls you as an active player into the story that God has been writing throughout all of history. And I just think it's incredible. It's, it's just it's, what a way to live the Christian life. What, what an in-depth and beautiful way to live it. But I think in general, we need to have more of an awareness of the fact that we are going to die. And, and this idea of memento mori, of remembering our deaths and, and meditating on the fact that we will die, is actually a spiritual practice um, that has existed throughout church history, especially in monastic areas and monastic movements. Um, but but you see this you see this thought of, of scripture in the Old Testament as well. You know, Psalm ninety two, teach us to count our days that we may gain a wise heart. Psalm thirty nine four, Lord, let me know my end and the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting my life is. There's lots of this uh, concept of our lives being fleeting and passing away in the Psalms, especially. Um, but throughout church history, you have you're confronted with death. In, in a much more tangible way, right? Graveyards used to exist right outside of the church. So you are walking through the cemetery to come into church. You're being reminded of all your fellow brothers and sisters who have died before you, and you're being reminded as your own death, of your own death, before you come into church to celebrate the resurrection of Christ. Because to some extent, you know, to see how glorious Jesus' resurrection is, we have to recognize what he defeated. He defeated death. But if we're never thinking about death, then understanding his resurrection, it, it, it's, it is not as, it's just not as meaningful. Um, we're not able to understand it as fully if we don't understand what it is that he has conquered. And I, I love this idea that graveyards are outside of church, you know? I mean, in so many ways, but especially in the fact that you are being brought every time you come in to worship the Lord, you're, you're being reminded of death outside. Um, then also we have images of skulls and other death-like imagery, but especially skulls in monastic crypts. So, and, and, and in, there are entire areas of art dedicated to this idea of memento mori. I love to, uh, just when I was researching this, there's, so if you haven't heard of St. Benedict, St. Benedict sort of founded a order. Yeah, it would be the Benedictine Order of, of Monkhood. <laughs> Is Monkhood a word? I think it's a word. Um, and so St. Benedict had the rules for the monks who would live um, in a Benedictine monastery. And one of his rules... Uh, is to have the expectation of death daily before one's eyes. So that is defined as an instrument of good works. And this is his rule book uh, says this about these whole, there's a collection of rules. It starts with the Ten Commandments. And well, it starts with love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then goes through the Ten Commandments and then expands out to all these other rules. And he says of all of these, behold, these are the instruments of the spiritual art the which, when they shall have been ceaselessly employed by us day and night, and duly given back in the day of judgment, shall be recompensed to us by that reward from God which he promised, that which the eye hath not seen, nor the ear heard, and that hath not entered into the human heart, the things which God has prepared for them who love him. So, so there's, just, there's this notion of, in church history, of having the expectation of death daily before our eyes as being something important something significant, a, a spiritual practice worth pursuing. Now, all of this, of course, 
is within the context of the resurrection, as I was already saying. So to understand what it means to be truly human, we have to recognize that we will die, but we also have to recognize that Christ himself has resurrected, has defeated death, and that we too will one day rise from death. But, but we're going to get into that a bit more. I just kind of want to dive into this idea of death a little bit. Um, one of the most fundamental truths about death is that it's inescapable. You know, at the end of the day, it does us no good to try not to think about death. It, either either we're arrogant and we just assume that we're never going to die, which is perhaps the position of um, those of us who are in our 20s, like me, or even younger than that. Or, and I think this is perhaps more likely for the majority of people, we, we are fearful of death. We don't want to think about it because we just, we don't want to go there. We don't know what it feels like to die. We don't know exactly what uh, is on the other side in, in the sense of, you know, you can never feel like you're going to be certainly completely sure uh, of what is going to happen the moment that you perish. And when we live in this fear, we're, we're just trying to ignore reality, basically. We're trying to ignore the fact that people do die every day, that our death could come upon us at any moment of any day. You know, we, we could die tonight, we could die tomorrow, we could die 70 years from now, it doesn't matter. We will die. And I, and I feel like if we have a, a proper understanding of the inescapability of death, if we really come to terms with it, and I think it's hard to, to confront ourselves with it, but if we really come to terms with the inescapability of it, then maybe we wouldn't be so fearful of things like COVID, you know, that come out of the blue and remind us that death is inescapable and inevitable, right? Because we, we've done so much in our current society of sheltering ourselves from death. If you live in a first world country and we've pushed it to, to the outside, just far, far away. Now, don't get me wrong, death still reigns in all of these places in a very real and tangible way, but we don't really think about it on a daily basis. But then COVID brought it to our attention. Not so much that we were all of a sudden then confronted with all these people we knew dying, but the news at any rate put death in front of our eyes. What it brought to our mind's eye was this realization that we can't control the world, we can't control our lives, that some things like a virus, they happen, they can't be stopped, they will take lives, they will claim lives, people will die. And there's nothing we can do about it. There's nothing we can do about ourselves. We can't avoid death altogether. We, we can't. We have to come to terms with it. And I think there is a difference between how we today in first world countries, you know, because I think in, in other third world countries, death is still very much a daily reality. And so I have a feeling that people there have a different understanding and a different relationship in that sense with death. Um, but for us today in this modern first world countries, I think that we, we have a very different view of death than people from most of the past, right? They saw death everywhere. They were confronted with death all the time. I mean, I mean, just think of certain periods in the Middle Ages where you had the Black Death and you had a third of Europe die. I mean, people are getting sick and dying the same day. Uh, you're watching entire villages perish. You know, everybody you know, dead. <laughs> and of course, that's only, you know, specific years at a specific time. But however you look at it, death was much more common. And, and there's a variety of answers throughout the ages of how you're going to deal with this death that you see all the time. And, and I'm hardly saying that all pre-modern times got the approach to death right. I, I don't think that they did. At the end of the day, you know, I'd argue that only Christianity has a good answer of how we deal with death. 
However, the, the big difference is that ancient and medieval peoples, a variety of cultures, they were faced with death and they had to grapple with it. They couldn't try to ignore it and push it to the side and lock it away and not think about it. They had to confront it. I've talked a bit about the Taoist approach to suffering and I maybe talk, touched on death in a previous episode um, if you want to look at that. My critique in my final paper for a Chinese philosophy class was that the Taoist approach doesn't give us a good enough answer to death. I mean, it really says that we just, we shouldn't mourn, we shouldn't weep, that there's no such thing really as death. Instead, you're just participating in this forever, um, the forever changing nature of the world. And so to, to be sad about death is actually a wrong position because you're trying to hold on to being a human when to be a human isn't really to be a human, which probably doesn't make any sense if you have no idea, no conception of Taoist philosophy. So sorry, that's just me geeking out a bit um, because I love Chinese philosophy so much. But, but here's the thing. Um, like I said, ancient medieval peoples faced with death, had to grapple with it. We don't have to do that so much. And I think that's a problem. Um, so later I'm going to pull a bit from, um, on some help from the medieval world of Christendom, but not yet. Uh, so, so why should we think about death? Why should we? Now, I'm not saying that we should think about death in the sense of fire and brimstone. You better get saved because if you die tonight, you're going to hell or something similar. Uh, this happened to me a lot in middle and high school where basically, you know, I was told you need to go out and evangelize all your friends who aren't Christians and you need to do it immediately because they might die tonight and then they're going to hell and it's kind of on you because you didn't tell them the gospel and you had it. Why didn't you shove it in their face and, and tell them before they died? And then, like, stories were given of, you know, people who had our age who had died very unexpectedly. And I, you know, I don't think that's a proper understanding of death. I, I don't think that's a good fear to cultivate. Because death is, is providentially decreed. And honestly... I could go tell a friend right now, I, I could try to give them the 30-second gospel or whatever, and that might, it's likely not to change anything if I just attempt to shove it down their throat and go, well, you know what, if you die tonight, you're going to hell, so maybe you need to convert. That just doesn't really, that, that's not true, that's not the grounding basis of true faith, right? True faith is is a looking to God, not an attempt to get out of hell free. And so I think this, I could go on a whole side rant of problems with certain methods of evangelization. But let, let me just say that when I'm saying memento mori, it's about remembering your own death, not thinking about the hellfire or whatever awaiting other people. Because it's important to recognize that even though we don't know when our death is going to come, it is providentially decreed. And I believe that the Lord is working through every single person's life. And, uh, you know, the process of coming to Christ is very often a slow process of many years of, you know, seeds being planted, if you want to say, but of the Lord just slowly working on people's hearts. And so that's why I think that attempts to say, you need to, you know, go give this 30 second gospel, elevator pitch gospel to somebody before they die tonight and go to hell, I just don't think it works. It just seems to me to have a very limited understanding of who God is and how God works in the lives of people, but um, enough of that. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, there's this book that I have called Shakespeare's Window into the Soul written by Martin Lings. It's a very interesting book, just talking about how 
Shakespeare himself and the work that he wrote uh, dives into and, and understand, like looks at the human soul and the human condition. And one of the things that Ling writes in this book, he talks about Hamlet and sort of Hamlet's <coughs> concluding speech, um, not concluding speech, but it's before he dies uh, <laughs> in the play, and how basically what he says as after he's matured is that all that matters is to be ready for death when its moment comes. And, and Lings argues that, that King Lear, I believe, um, makes a similar sort of speech statement in a similar vibe after he has matured. And what a, what a powerful notion that all that matters in life really is to be ready for death when its moment comes. And I think that's why we need to talk about death and look at death. Because at the end of the day, you will die. And what matters is how you're going to greet that death. Um, that moment is going to come. And you ought to spend your life preparing for that moment. At death, right? Everything is gone. All of our possessions, fame, glory, if it's not gone immediately, it will be gone eventually. People won't remember you forever. This is the whole notion of the book of Ecclesiastes, where Solomon just digs into this, this understanding that really life is meaningless. Without Christ, life is is a vanity, a vanity, it's a chasing after the wind. But we don't really think about that very often, right? We fill our heads with all sorts of distractions. We look this way, we look that way, we run after things, we run after success, we, we run after possessions, whatever you want to think. We run after trying to help people, but even one day they too will die, and, and what was the good of all of that? Because no matter how much you help people, you can't stop them from dying too. And so, we come to this position when we recognize that we will die. We come to to this understanding that so much of this is meaningless. It's meaningless if death is simply the end. So remembering death reframes for us the purpose of human life, reframes what it means to be a human. It can't be to find possessions or to gather, or find success or to gather possessions or even to spend our lives helping others because all of us will die. Apart from Christ, human life loses any lasting end. For as far superior as Aristotle's notion of eudaimonia is to sheer hedonism, both of them end in death. Solomon himself writes in Ecclesiastes that the wise and the foolish, they both die. It is only in Christ that our true end is found. So we can have sort of two conflicting notions of what it means to be We can actually have many conflicting notions of what it means to be a human. But I want to present two conflicting notions, right? There's one idea of being a human is about surviving or escaping death. That's, that's one view of what it means to be a human, is to push death back as far as possible. We can, we can see this notion everywhere. But the other idea of what it means to be a human is it means to prepare well for death. And so that's what we've been talking about, what we're exploring here with why we should be thinking about death. But I don't want to just sit in that anymore because when the Christian remembers death, remembers that we are dust and to dust we will return, we suddenly find hope. Because Ash Wednesday is the beginning of the Lenten season, which culminates with Good Friday, Holy Saturday, and then Resurrection Sunday, right? Jesus himself, God himself, dies, but he dies in order to defeat death. And he rises again from the grave. It is Jesus' bodily resurrection that gives us hope in the face of death, because death isn't the end. In fact, we too will one day rise with bodies just like the body of Christ. 
and really just to explore this. Um, I could talk about it, but I just think it would be so much better to read scripture. And so I'm just going to read the entire chapter of uh, 1 Corinthians 15, which is like the epitome of resurrection chapters, I feel like, in, um, in the New Testament. And it's just great. So here goes. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed." Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who puts all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. 
There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory, it is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that it is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the cornerstone of the hope of the Christian, that Jesus rose from the dead. You can see uh, the first what's argued in the beginning of chapter 15, the first creed of the church, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. This, this is the gospel, that Christ died and rose again. And if he hasn't risen again, if there is no such thing as the resurrection of the body, then Paul even writes, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Why not live the hedonistic lifestyle of pleasure if death really is the end, right? Coming to terms with death is what decides how we're going to live our lives. And if we see death not as the end, but I suppose as an end, right? as the, the man of dust must die, must return to the dust. So the man of heaven, the man remade in the image of Christ, can be born again, can be brought to life, can be resurrected from the dead. And it's this cornerstone, this idea that Christ has risen from the dead. And one day we too will rise from the dead just like him that informs the rest of the Christian life. Because at the very end, after Paul spends all of this time talking about the resurrection of Christ and our own resurrection, how does he end? He says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Any work that we do in the Lord is not in vain. It doesn't end with death. Somehow it contributes to this resurrected body, to this new world. I've said before that our purpose as humans is to come into perfect communion with the Trinity, which starts now and is fulfilled in the final resurrection. What we do now is valuable because it is only the beginning of the story, of a story that doesn't end with our individual deaths. The studying that we do, the, the songs that we sing or write, the stories that we tell 
all of the things, um, the, the community that we build, the friendships, the love that we foster, all of these things, when they are done, knit together within the Lord, they are meaningful, they are valuable, they are not in vain. But if we do any of these things outside of the Lord, it is completely in vain because it ends with death. So, so now we come to this sort of final question. If, if it's important as a human to recognize, to be a true human, to recognize that we will die, unless of course the Lord returns before we die, in which case Paul writes about our bodies being changed into the heavenly body. But assuming that we will, like everybody else in the past, die, we have to ask ourselves, how are we going to prepare well for death? How are we going to approach it well? If you wake up every morning, and I'm not saying you have to wake up every morning, but if you wake up every morning and you say, one day I will die, what will that change? I think it gives us a spirit of humility, recognizing that we're not eternal by our own power, recognizing that we will die, that everything we've done will crumble away into dust. It orders our lives better, right? Puts what is most important at the top, which is God himself, and goes down from there. Right? Because it's not a bad thing to love the things of earth in the sense of, you know, loving the work that you do, the friends that you have, it is that our loves need to be properly ordered with the Lord at top. I think it also gives us this notion of contentedness. Why do we need to strive to be the best we can possibly be when all of it will end in death, when that's not really the purpose of human life? It gives us a contentedness in our position in life and refocuses us, us to strive after the one thing that matters, which is communion with God himself. Um, for me, I think, in a sense, contentedness is hard. And maybe that's because, you know, I'm 22 and sort of at the beginning of the journey of life. I'm about to start grad school in the fall. And I can have all these dreams of where I want to go after I get my master's, like where I want to go get my PhD and perhaps what university I want to teach at and what I want to study and research and what other books I want to write and, you know, how I want to make my way into this specific academic circle and, you know, perhaps make a name for myself researching and studying this. But when I stop and think about death, you know, it's not that those things aren't valuable, that doing good research isn't meaningful, but, but the making a name for myself, that doesn't matter. You know, and if I never go down that path, if something else happens that sidetracks me and leads me down a different path, I can be content in that because the purpose of my life is not to be the best academic I can be. It is to come into communion with God himself. St. Teresa of Alethea, I looked up how to pronounce it, but that was several days ago, so I forgot. Um, Noble, she, she's a sister. She wrote a Lindsay devotional on this and I'll link to it. Um, and so on this notion of memento mori, because she started practicing it by putting a skull, uh, I believe, on her desk and sort of and continually meditating on it, reflecting on the fact that she would one day die. So she writes about this practice, and I'm going to read some of what she wrote. I don't have the devotional, but I might get it for Lent next year. She talks about three things that um, rem the practice of remembering our death can bring us. She talks about focus. Um, so I'm just going to read this. This is from the Catholic Digest. She said, remembering my death daily was stressful at first, but over time I began to feel a greater focus. When I recall that death could come at any time, I realized that few things in my life were as important as I thought they were. My list of priorities suddenly became smaller. For instance, at one point I was stressed out about a test I had to take for school, but when I realized I might die the next day, the test lost some of its importance in my mind, which is, you know, such a small thing. It's not that those things aren't important, but they're not the most important. And so your stress levels can sort of go down when you remember that and it helps you focus in on what truly is 
of the highest importance. Then she writes about holiness. Says, as I narrowed in on the things in my life that were most important, one thing immediately went straight to the top. Holiness and union with God. Before I started thinking about my death, it was so easy to put off holiness for another day. But when I meditated on the fact that death is unpredictable, I soon realized that I needed to prepare for death. I wanted to choose God every moment of every day and not be caught unawares. I desired holiness, not just someday, but now. I, the truth is, she's right, you know, the death, our death is unpredictable. And so when we're looking at what is most important, the most important thing should be to be well prepared for death. And the way to be well prepared for death is to be in, in union with God. It's to be moving further and further along the, the trail of holiness. The last thing she says is, is joy. She wrote that St. Francis of Assisi affectionately called death, Sister Death. His attitude toward death demonstrates how the Christian is called to see more joy in death than fear. When I first meditated on death, it was a frightening foe. But over time, I began to see death more as a doorway to heaven. As I began to focus on the things that really matter and to look forward to heaven, joy surged in my heart. As we contemplate on Jesus' resurrection and as we contemplate on our final resurrection, the new heavens, the new earth, not just the heaven, whatever happens immediately when we die, but the ultimate culmination of the whole story. What joy that will bring and give us because that's what our hearts are longing for. Our hearts are longing for this perfected relationship with God, which with um, what the Catholic Church calls the beatific vision, right? Of seeing in God face to face. That is the purpose of what it means to be a human. It's something we can't fully wrap our heads and our minds around. But when you begin to meditate on that, that is what is going to bring the ultimate joy. And so, you know, I, so I feel like at, at the core, preparing well for death means that we get our priorities straight. We get our loves ordered rightly. We turn our face to what matters most, God himself. Of course, coming into closer communion to God means embracing the world that he gives us, right? We recognize when, when we know we that we can't escape death, that every day is a gift. So we live at our role as his image bearers. We create beautiful things. We rejoice in goodness. We speak truth. We live in community. We do all of these things that bring us into closer communion to God. And we appreciate and enjoy all of these things in their proper order instead of getting things out of order. That's, that's what I love about um, so much of the focus of, of the medieval church is this idea of rightly ordered versus disordered loves. And, and that's so much of what you see going on in, in Dante's Divine Comedy. You know, especially in Purgatorio, what's happening is that people, as they're going up the terraces in Purgatory and getting closer and closer to Paradise, their loves are getting properly ordered. You know, like they, they were saved, they knew God, they knew Christ, but perhaps, you know, they lusted more. That, that was, that love for that, that specific appetite outruled everything else. And so they have to have that cleansed and purged away from them so that their loves can be can be perfected in their order. It is not to get rid of of loves of other things, of loves of people or, or loves of food. I mean, I guess gluttony is like just a great, an easy example, right? That you could have a disorder. Gluttony is just a disorder love. It's not that food is bad, but it's that you love food too much. And, and so I just... I feel like I'm definitely rambling and all over the place. I apologize for that. But I feel like we need to recapture this idea 
of having rightly ordered loves. It is not a forsaking of everything, but it is it is loving things in the correct order with God himself as being our greatest and most fullest, richest love. And death and meditating on death, thinking on death, helps us to order our loves correctly. It helps us to live our lives in pursuit of the goal of perfect communion with God, with the Trinity. Um, so I thought how I would end this, and honestly, this is partially what, besides just the All Creatures Great and Small podcast episode, this is partially what inspired this, is I have this collection that I found in a bookstore of medieval English verse um, poetry. The introductions to some of the poems are really annoying. <laughs> the The guy, Brian Stone, who translated them and collected it, he has a bit of a snobby attitude towards the medieval world, which always annoys me a lot, uh, because obviously they write such beautiful poetry, you can't really be that snobby towards them. So I'm going to read three poems. Two of them are quite short. Um, the last one is just a little bit longer to help us meditate on death, to help us reflect on it um, just as a spiritual practice. So that's what we're going to do. And I'll just end with that. Here's the first one. When the turf is your tower and the pit is your bower, the worm shall note your skin and white throat. What help to you then that the world is one? Here's the second one. When my eyes are fogged and my ears are clogged and my nose turns cold and my tongue's back rolled and my cheeks slacken and my lips blacken and my mouth blubbers and my spittle slobbers and my hair stands up and my heart beats droop and my hands quiver and my feet stiffen all too late, all too late when the beer is at the gate. Then I shall go from bed to floor, from floor to shroud, from shroud to beer, from beer to pit, and be shut in it. Then lies my house upon my nose, and all my care for this world goes. This last one is called The Ten Ages of Man. Woeful wretch you are to the sight of all the creatures least in might. All this world you turn to play, the more you play, the more you may. Wealth makes man at others gape, for to the rich men bow and scrape. Now you have found the thing you sought, beware, for it continues not. Strong you were, now fails your might, you're heavy now, who once were light. All your life you sorrowed and cared, for soon comes death and none is spared. Wisdom you have in tongue and mind, how you have lived, you soon shall find. This world's good shall now forsake you, for death has come, and he will take you. Men and women all in so, easy they come, and easy go. For life you have no need to care, when worms have got you for their fare. 